Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 339 is recorded live, August 24th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are recovering from the total eclipse. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here as usual. And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing most excellent, Darren. And how about yourself? I am doing wonderful. At least I um, better. I'm recovering from a cold, which I'm going to blame on the fair. So I have to apologize for, I now have two unedited episodes sitting in the can that I don't have up plus tonight. So this is like a record of being behind. But if if I wasn't at fair cooking corn dogs, I was at home sleeping. <clears throat> so well, it sounds like you were definitely out earning your keep this week, last week there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did anybody get a chance to uh, get a load of the eclipse this week? I think everybody did, didn't they? If you didn't see it live, you can sure see it online. <laughs> I, I didn't even pay attention online. Was there a lot of people out there streaming it? Well, you know, if you look on Facebook and pretty much any social media, you know, people were taking pictures of it and all, all over the place. And, you know, so some of the pictures posted online are, by amateurs are pretty decent. Um, I'm hearing that those real popular ones that are attributed to NASA have a, a lot of artist interpretation in them as well. But a, a little you know, Photoshop uh, editing going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they keep on popping up on social media, being attributed to, to, to NASA. They have these great, you know, uh, cloudscapes along with them. Uh-huh. But I'm hearing out that now most most of those are all edited and you know actual photographs of the eclipse. But then they, you know, put them, you know, almost like having a uh, a theme frame around them with all the <laughs> the different cloudscapes on them. Looks pretty oh. cool, but. Like 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 the end of the world too. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I did like a lot of the NASA ones. Uh, the ones from the airplanes are really interesting looking. Yeah, I think some of those are the ones though which are you know really doctored. I mean, they're, they're cool to look at, but I don't think they're very uh, authentic for what people are actually seeing. I was trying to convince everybody at work that we needed to sacrifice somebody to get the sun to return, but nobody was up for that. You well, didn't volunteer? Did you yeah. Well, I wasn't going to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, a, f- a few in there. We have um, uh, Dave's calling in. I understand he's on his way to this side of the state 
to do some scuba diving. We uh, have a, a couple of numbered guests, and we have Under John. That looks like a new name in the chat room. And we're also trying out a new chat room tonight. Uh, it will be a text replacement for the TalkShoe chat room. It's Discord. If you go under our Facebook page, uh, you can get a link there. Uh, we also had a link on our Patreon site. And also on our website, if you go to our Contact Us page and scroll down to the bottom, there's a link there as well. And I had planned to try and uh, play around a little bit with YouTube, but I, I think one new technology tonight is enough. So next week we'll try the YouTube streaming, which will hopefully replace the audio streaming we're doing with TalkShoe, and I'll get us completely off TalkShoe. So a little bit of testing, but the the Discord seems to be working out pretty well. Um, And there's some discussions that Discord could potentially replace Skype down the road, but I don't think we need to rush to do that. So let's take a look at the first article we have this week. We have uh, six men charged with illegal diving for antiquities in Manny. I'm not sure where Manny is, but uh, considering it's a Greek uh, newspaper, I'm thinking it's some sort of Greek location. The Greek Coast Guard announced the arrest of six Greeks on suspicion of illegal diving for underwater antiquities off the coast of uh, Manny near Gytheo in the Peloponnese. It's almost like this is Greek. The artists were made following a tip-off that six individuals were searching for ancient artifacts around the sunken Roman ship in uh, Limini, eastern Manny. Arriving at the scene, Coast Guard officers located six Greek men aged 50, 49, 47, 45, 42, and 34 years old, respectively, in a vehicle. After searching the vehicle, they found scuba diving gear and archaeological artifacts that were sent for evaluation to the underwater antiquities exforet. All six suspects were led before a public prosecutor and charged with violating the law and the protection of the antiquities and cultural heritage while their diving equipment was confiscated. be interesting to hear the follow-up. Yeah, because uh, a little bit different laws over there in Europe. Um, of course, I think they would do pretty much the same thing over here. I think they'd confiscate your gear. Uh, but don't you have to be found guilty before they take your gear? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like uh, I know dr- under drug laws that we have over here, they don't have to. They can seize stuff before uh, you're found guilty. I think if you're Ooh, found, which yeah. I have a problem with, that's not right. Well, it's it's not. Uh, but I believe you do get it back if you're found innocent. Not all cases. Oh, yeah, are there I, are I there ca- our, big time our, cases? You no, know, that our DNR can confiscate pretty much every, anything they want around here, you know, guilty or not, and you may or may not get it back no matter how you're found. Yeah, because I, I know, like in the case of on land, if uh, for hunting violations, you know, that they ticket at you for, uh, they'll they'll seize the gun and the, the vehicles. I mean, they've gotten RVs that way. So. I mean, I don't think this actually goes up until auction until you've had a chance to, uh, you know, contest the charges and you know, prove your innocence there, but... Oh. Um, they, th- they, they very often will take will take whatever's involved when the alleged crime right on the spot. Yeah, uh, and I also think that there's cases of uh, plea bargaining where they'll negotiate that in. Like uh, you may not be found guilty, but they're going to keep what they took. And then that li- that ring that was lost for sixty three years is still under warranty. A Green Valley resident, Carol Bates Smith, was astounded to get her class ring back early this month after losing it sixty three years ago. 
She was also surprised to find that the company that found that made it is willing to fix and resize it for free. After a front page story about a ring was published in Sunday's Green Valley News, Bates Smith said a lot of people called to congratulate her on her amazing luck. One of those reached out was uh, Joe Grassi, owner of Jostens in South Arizona. Grassi wanted to make sure Bates Smith knew that the 120 year old company's rings come with a lifetime warranty. Invited her to come to his Tuscan, Tucson. Why I can't? I'm adding some uh, pronunciation in there. Store so he could resize the ring. Bates Smith was grateful to Grassi for reaching out because she didn't know about the warranty. She'd already sent the ring to Jostens in Denton, Texas, for repairs and resizing. The whole thing had been pretty cool, she said. I've just been amazed. Bates Smith, 82, lost her class ring in a lake of northern Wisconsin in 1954, two years after she graduated from Storm Lake High in Storm Lake, Iowa. On July 30th, Van Coonan, a 44-year-old scuba diver from Grandview, Wisconsin, found the ring with an underwater metal detector. Canoonan found the ring just an inch or two below the sand. The ring had a blue stone with a tornado attached. It was inscribed with 1952 and the initial C and J. After time on the Internet and some phone calls, Canoonan connected the dots, cleaned up the ring, and shipped it to Bates Smith. She sent it to Jossens to have the tornado more firmly attached and the ring resized. Grassi's administrative assistant saw Bates' story on the Sun Facebook page and immediately tagged him. Here's just one of the really neat found ring stories he's encountered, Grassi says. His mother-in-law, a retired flight attendant, once came in with a ring lost in a cross-country flight, and he was able to track down the owner in New Jersey. Which basically a big promotion for buying class rings. At the price you pay for those darn things, they should be warranted. That's still a good story, and it's always interesting when they follow up with how old the person was, how they lost it. Uh-huh. I, I especially like that. I think that's worth more than, than the ring. And, and the, she lost it so soon after getting it, just within a couple of years. And now she's... Yeah, I wonder, what kind of con- I wonder what kind of condition it was in after being underwater for so long. Well, it, it sounded like that the there was a tornado on it. So I imagine, I don't know if they've changed how they make rings over the years, but it almost sounds like that tornado was physically attached to the ring and it started to come off. How much do class rings cost now? I mean, you're just familiar with that, aren't you? Uh, my kids opted for other options than a class ring. I mean, the coat. I think my, my daughter's coat, by the time we were done, those overachievers, uh, it was almost $300. You're talking about letter jacket? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you got to get the sleeves and the, depending on the sleeves, color, material, and then each patch. And, you know, she had a ton of them. Uh, it, it, it took like four or five months to from the time you ordered it to when you could get it there was such a backlog but rings i think a, a woman's ring is a little bit less than a men's ring but i think they're in the 300 dollar range uh, and that's if you go to one of the you know the jewelers or the the name brands that are coming to the schools uh, you can sometimes go to some of the big box retailers and get them a little bit less expensive but you're in the couple hundred dollar range I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I, I never had one kind of the same thing. I I just didn't want to spend the money for it. Um, I do have one. My wife has hers from Paris American High School, which my daughter will have. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, those are a little unique there, I think. Yeah. You know, if you I always were, think it's funny that when you get your letter jacket during school, you want to get it as soon as you can and really enjoy it. Because the first year in junior college, 
you're never going to wear that again. No. No, you, about the only time you might wear it is to come back for homecoming and your high school to visit it or, or, or something. Or the reunions to prove you can still put it on after 20 years. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I, I, I might be, I would be, if be able to get maybe a, a hand in or something if I had had one. Next article up is a new app enables divers to chart marine litter levels. Smart app is enabling scuba divers to record information on the marine litter they encounter under the sea. The new data obtained by the smartphone app Underwater Protection Organization Project Aware will build a data set that will be shared with science and conservation bodies to help drive long-term change address the global marine litter crisis. Marine debris includes materials discarded or washed into the sea and causes problems with wildlife or ocean inhabitants. The study published last year by environmental organization Ocean Conservancy and the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO, found that entanglement is the greatest risk for marine life created by plastic pollution, but ingestion and contamination are also major risks. In 2016 alone, divers reported 1,624 entangled marine animals during surveys for Project AWARE. Awareness of the problem has spiked in recent years with microplastics soon to be banned in cosmetic products in the UK, now being traced to the remotest areas of the waters in the Arctic, as well increasing amounts of land-derived litter making its way in the sea. Most items that reach marine environments degrade very slowly, leading to an accumulation of polluting material. Although its Dive Against Debris survey had been running since 2011, Project Aware hopes that the launch of the app will make it easier for divers to report their findings. For ease, the app includes a list of common debris items and uses geolocation to track the latitude and longitude of the dive. After completing a dive, all diver has to do is report the debris removed, dive conditions, and upload any photos. The app stores the diver's data regardless of data connection through a draft feature. Divers are an invaluable Divers are invaluable to the research process, working alongside academic bodies to map the scale and extent of marine litter, helping government meet objectives in the Global Partnership in Marine Litter, which builds on um, the Honolulu Strategy. A strategy released in 2011 is a framework of comprehensive global efforts to reduce the impact of marine debris and protect human health and ecology globally. Dana Moore, Project Aware's Director of Global Operations, said, For many people, marine debris is a problem that's out of sight, out of mind once it enters the marine environment. This is mainly because 70% of the marine debris that enters the ocean sinks to the seafloor. That's why scuba divers are so critical in this movement. They have a unique ability to bring to surface what's going on beneath the waves. Yes, we do. And we see a lot of it. Uh, this will be interesting. I might load this on. Uh, it could be something we could play around with for the ecology dive. I'm interested in the entanglement. I um, I thought it was very interesting. In 1,624 documented entanglement documented. No, that was a marine life. I think they're talking about different fish and things being caught something down there. Yeah. I wonder if that's like maybe old maybe old fishing nets down there. I know those old fishing nets never quit catching fish. Yeah, those ghost that's nets. True. Yeah. You see a lot of those in the uh, you know the Seattle area. I know they've got an effort to remove a lot. Uh, and and that's you know that's a light number. You know, there, there's there, you probably could add a couple zeros to the end of what's really being uh, uh, captured. Well, all you got to do is look for all the videos because if you saw that, you're going to video it. You got your GoPro, and they're going to put it on the internet. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we do see a lot of those, and some of them are really interesting. Well, you always see those, uh, like you know, like the turtle caught in the beer can ring, you know, where it's they've been restricted. Mm-hmm. I would like to see people that post, uh, you know, diving videos online put a little bit more effort into making them uh, understandable about to, about to the non-diver. You know, you look on YouTube and there's an awful lot of really good wreck footage on there. But, you know, those of us who, who know ship construction and know, and know what to expect down there, you know, we're able to, to, to follow along and know, okay, yep, now we're looking at a bow, we're looking at a stern, we're looking at a cabin, we're looking at a hawse pipe. Uh, but you know, to the general public... You know, they don't really know what they're looking at. They just see it. It's just a bunch of wet wood down there, and they kind of move on. But, you know, I've seen where people who put a little bit more effort into trying to, you know, like put some text down there. Okay, uh, you know, Mac is now swimming along the bow here, or, you know, this is this is the hawse pipe, which is basically where the, where the chains come out of the bow, things like that. You know, it'd be nice for the, the non-diver to be able to enjoy these, and then you're going to get a lot more views, too. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's something that we need to do in the video version of the podcast. Maybe we'll do the, we'll break out our inner Jacques Cousteau and do the narration over the uh, videos. And maybe we could point it out, you know, get, get your little uh, virtual laser pointer out and you could highlight stuff. Because I think that'd be interesting. Also, if you could have some experts, uh, maybe somebody, somebody, couple people who are experts on ship construction, because there's times where... It's hard as a diver, even if I'm on the wreck. I'm, I might know what's there, but I, I might not realize all the details. Yeah, yeah. When we're down there, you know, like, like take a wreck which is kind of broken up, like the uh, the Havana down there. You know, I mean, you do occasionally come across things you, that you recognize, but mm-hmm. then so much of it down there. Well, you you, well, you you know you're kind of on the stern section here, so <laughs> what you're saying probably is related to rudders, and you know, but uh, you just don't know. Well, and we had something like that happen uh, very recently with, uh, I believe it was Bob Sweeney. Was Jim Schultz on that one, too, where they uh, dove the one wreck and actually found another one? Or they ended up yeah, diving that, on a different one? Yeah, that we, we, we did that two weeks ago. Yeah, we yeah. were looking to dive the, the Farnham, and it's looking like we actually may have been on the Dutton, mm-hmm. which, uh, I don't know, what's... I think that was, also, that was on MSRA's page as the flat wreck, but uh, there's been some emails that have been sent back and forth, the different pictures of it and all that, and uh, Craig Rich of Michigan Shipwreck Rich Association is quite confident that we were actually on the Dutton, but what we saw looked quite different than what is on the on their, their webpage, but then there may be, you know, the webpage, you know, those are a number of your old pictures and there may have been some additional sediment come down. Um, I don't know. It was an interesting dive, but all we saw was you, you've seen those those few clips of Rob and myself hanging around the bow. Well, it turns out to actually be a bow section. We thought it was a stern section. But they're oh. saying it's a bow section now. So, yeah, and yeah. then and then there was some discussion of of where you know was that a rail or was that uh, openings in a cabin? Yeah, I mean, some of us. That, I mean, I don't know when you're down there. And, you know, it's deep and it's dark. Uh, you know, to me, it looked as though it was, you know, basically the the, the wall, the stern. You know, I, I thought we were looking at, at windows for, uh, you know, for a, a boat that had, stern, had a stern cabin on it. Bob uh, Sneep, who got in a little bit closer and was able to, you know, look at his pictures pretty closely, indicates that there's no 
indication of uh, anything to hold glass in those openings. So we probably are actually looking at you know very large openings of a rail that, that went around the ship. Um, you know the, the pictures were sent to Craig Rich of NSRA, who went over them and compared them to some of their pictures they have of the Dutton, which is in that immediate area. And that's what Craig Rich is saying is that you no, know, we we actually were on on the Dutton. It's just uh, the Pictures you see of the AP Dutton at MSRA's page show quite a bit more than what we saw. But then the, the Dutton, I believe, also was called the uh, flat wreck at one time on MSRA's page. Because it mostly, it, it's mostly a, a deck parallel with the bottom of the lake, pretty you know, the flat wreck. And it would not take much sediment at all to, to, to cover that up. So. Now, did they think it was a flat wreck because it, had literally flattened, or had the bottom come up even with the deck? Well, they were calling it the flat wreck just, you know, for lack of being identified, which later on they were able to identify it as as the the Dutton, I believe. I'm not 100% certain of this here. I know the flat wreck does not show up on MSRA's page anymore, and I'm thinking that, uh, you know, they identify the flat wreck as, as the AP Dutton. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, I don't know, they... they, they it'd be kind of hard to excavate and look for cargo and things and all that because, you know, the ship is, you know, it's similar to Max Wreck where it's, right. you know, pretty well buried in the bottom of the, of the lake. And, you know, it's kind of a case in point of why, sad to say, there are so many of these ships which truly are never going to be seen again. Because yeah. when, when they get down there, you know, the, the, there are currents down there. You know, we saw that around the base of these rails there where, you know, you're at 173 feet, and you can see where the sediments have pooled around. You know, like you know, behind the boards coming out of the out of the bottom. You know, it actually acted as a as a as a break wall. You know, you can see the sand has pooled around it and made nice little channels for the burbot to play in. You know, there are quite a few burbot down there, and you know, Bob took pictures of those, and you know, pictures of Rob and myself all with wreck. So. Uh, we, we we got down there. and We were expecting to see the Farnham. Uh, obviously, it wasn't the Farnham. You know, we the Farnham should be pretty burned, and should you know by the video of the Farnham, which you can also see at Michigan Shipwreck Research Association's webpage, shows quite a bit down there. Uh, you know, shows the boiler, shows the chines laying down on you know, the, the, the chines being the, the, the sides of the ship are are laying on the on the bottom of the lake. Um, you have a lot of, you know, poles that are standing up on the bottom of the lake. I suspect perhaps the farm was one of those ships that had, you know, a, an internal iron framework, which uh, when the ship went down and the chines laid down, the framework stayed up because, you know, if you look at the page, which I'm quite confident is Bob Underhill we're seeing in the video because he has those same yellow fins, by the way. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm sure those are Bob Underhill's uh, yellow fins we're seeing in that video. But, uh, you know, the, the farm has a lot to see on there. Um, the Dutton, we were at, I'm probably not going back. <laughs> you know, it was a one-and-done kind of deal. Uh, now, are the wrecks close enough together? That was the reason why you got on the wrong one, or is it just a crossing of numbers? You know, that hasn't really been ironed out yet. There's been some different, you know, we're not quite sure how, because I, I wasn't involved in the, 
you know, in the navigation on this one here, I'll tell you that. Uh, I, and I don't know what made a difference. You know, uh, you know, I, I'm hearing one thing. I'm hearing different versions of why we went to dive the Farnham and ended up on the Dutton. I don't really know. So, um, well, pizza sandwich. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely something down there. I know that you know, you know, Schultz saw something on his uh, down imager, and he dropped a uh, he, he uh, dropped a jug on it, and uh, you know, made an you know, did a kind of a personal invite to a handful of us to come out there and, and dive it. And you know, the Farnham sound pretty cool. I like to see it once. Um, so there were five of us going out to it. Incidentally, though, that there was a jug on that on that rail there. Um, so, so it, it had been marked. At, it had been marked at some point. Yeah, it had been marked at some point, and you know, there was some line kind of wrapped up around it, you know, which I believe was from the jug. So that there definitely was an a, a tide jug, and not an extremely old tide jug either. Uh, that was on that you know rail down there. So, so someone has seen it before, you know. Uh, and, you know and, and, and I guess both Craig and Valerie. Into the pictures pretty thoroughly, and decided, "Yep, that's that's the Dutton. Oh, it's got a name." Well, this next article we have is saying. Hey, can no, I interrupt an item real sure. quick? Yeah, um, that reminds me of a couple of articles we've gone through through the years. That young guy who was eighteen many years ago devised a mechanism to clean up plastics from the ocean. Yes, I sent a link on that just for reference. You can look at it later, but. Um, that's really going places, and they're actually in the um, testing phase out there in the Pacific now. And some of the stats they indicated on that, hang on one second. Yeah, that was the, uh, let me see, Yeah, the, the, the project, which was called the Ocean Cleanup, had raised $21.7 million, or 16.8 million pounds, in donations since November 2016, and allowed it to move forward with a large-scale trailing of its marine plastic cleanup technology and Pacific Ocean later this year. And this article right. is from May. Uh, so it, it would indicate that at some point, in the, if it hasn't already happened the next couple months, they were hoping to get out there and do some testing. The stats on it were interesting from the aspect they estimate 12.2 million tons of plastic enters the marine environment every year. And it's at a great a uh, deal of that is concentrated in the North Pacific in the area called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. But the article itself is worth looking at if anybody's interested in, you know, you've got those animals trapped. Well, take a look and see what else is out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think a couple of podcasts ago we were talking about that uh, Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We were trying to find pictures of it. We got a surprise we couldn't actually find pictures of it online. Wonder just how bad it really is. Well, there's a contrary comment here. It says, on the contrary, environmental consultants gave the name of it, say that barely 1% of marine plastics are to be found floating at or near the ocean surface, an average of less than one kilogram found in each square kilometer of ocean on the surface. All of it has gone to the bottom. Yeah, and that and that's kind of what you'd expect is that it's going to kind of sink. Yeah, the yeah, estimate is 94% of the plastic that enters the ocean ends up on the bottom. Yeah, so many people seem to think the plastic always floats, but, you know, I'm sure there are certain varieties of it that do. But we see so much of it on the bottom that it's clear the majority of it does not. Right. There, There is some in that 
they've now developed to be uh, biodegradable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very smart thing. Yeah, well, I mean, plastic, they put a lot in to make it so that it doesn't biodegrade a lot of hardeners and UV protectants. Uh, and there are some formulations that they can make. Uh, some of it's been made with corn uh, where it can have a design a designed lifespan where, you know, six months to a year it will start to break down. Well, that'd be nice because we see an awful lot of it on the bottom of the, the rivers and lakes. Yeah, the, it's the, amazing how you out yeah. there and you see garbage bags and um, milk jugs and Tide bottles and all kinds of stuff down there. So yeah, the, the, the single-use containers, they just need to start doing that right away. It doesn't make sense to try and make that stuff last forever. I mean, I, I try and recycle and reuse some of my, you know, the grocery bags. I use that kind of as my lunchbox to go back and forth. But you, they really, you can reuse them a couple times before they start to tear and disintegrate, uh, which is not to say they're breaking down. It just means they're no longer able to hold anything. Well, I see a lot of the the uh, big chains are going to those, you know, purchase your own uh, grocery bag. You know, they have these uh, reusable canvas bags that you buy, and they're, they're, they're quite cheap. And some places have even gone so far as to give you a, a, a minor discount on your groceries if you're using your own bag as opposed to theirs. You know, yeah. like it's like a, a nickel off every $10 or something there, but they, you know, some places are doing that. I know that uh, locally here we have Myers has you know their uh, grocery bags available. You buy a blue canvas bag for I think like five bucks or something, and they're they're pretty cheap. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't last an awful long. Pretty cheap, and you see a lot of people are using those now. Yeah, I know some people religiously will take them and use them. I'm I'm so forgetful. I probably got forty of them in my in my pantry. Uh, mm-hmm. They do because they do, they don't make it the other way back. I I need to take them with me to the store. <laughs> just keep them out in the car. Oh gosh, I, I I'm just you know with a semi new vehicle. I've been trying so hard not to leave crap in the vehicle, which can be a challenge. <laughs> yeah, especially after Fair Week, I'm slowly. I think I've still got a couple saddles and stuff in the car, and I'm, hopefully we'll get that cleaned up. The only thing that should be left in the vehicle, as we all know, is scuba gear. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, stuff gets pretty rank, though. <laughs> I mean, especially in, you know this time of year, it's it's kind of hard to leave your scuba gear out there. I mean, <laughs> you know, cars get hot. Uh, I don't know what the you know you know burst discs in a hot car. If, if you want to test them out, I guess that's the way to do it. But I don't want to be in the in the car with them. So. Yeah, I, I haven't had one go, but I understand Mac knows how that that operates. Which part? The burst disc. <laughs> In a hot car. Oh, that's for sure. I was just going to suggest also, in the event that you were to relieve yourself in your wetsuit, never, ever leave that in the back of your car. Oh, my God. <laughs> that Talk sounds like... Experience <laughs> it sounds more like Not a practical I, but joke. I people who have. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's... It's kind of like you have the dead dead fish under the seat or you have the urinated wetsuit in the car. Well, you know, when it comes to divers and peeing in their wetsuits, you know, there are two kinds. You know, there are the the, the, the ones that do it and the ones that lie and say they don't, you know. So. <laughs> Next article we have is no more Mary Rose-style excavations as ships will be explored using VR instead. This is a U.K. article out of the Telegraph. 
They say that the Mary Rose will be the last great ship salvaged from British washers, waters. Historic England has said that as visitors will explore shipwrecks using virtual reality instead. Mark Dunkey, chief marine archaeologist at Historic England, said the agency is working on allowing visitors to explore shipwrecks using VR headsets because it was too expensive and labor-intensive to bring them up from the depths. They thought to be more than 40,000 shipwrecks around the British coast, but very few of them have been identified and explored by archaeologists. The Mary Rose, Henry VIII's beloved warship, which sank in 1545 in Solent, was salvaged in 1982 and remains the largest major recovery project of its kind ever undertaken in the world. Last year, new Visitor Center Marine and Museum in Portsmouth was finally completed to house the wreck, but speaking as an announcement that two more wrecks have been listed by the government, Historic England said it's unlike, uh, it's likely to remain one of a kind. Mark Dunkey, Chief Marine Maritime Archaeologist at Historic England said, it's a change in policy to be more pragmatic about what we can really do. With the Mary Rose, that came up when I was still in short trousers in the 1980s, and the process is only just finished with the new museum being completed last year. I don't think any massive shipwreck excavation is ever going to happen like that again, so work on Historic England is doing is keeping these shipwrecks alive is a virtual reality. Three ships can currently be explored using VR headsets, HMS Invincible, HMS Colossal, and HMT Arfon, and the government agency is working on adding more. A pair of 17th and 18th century merchant ships, complete with cannons which sank near Chelsea Beach in the First World War U-boat near Whitby by North Yorkshire have been granted protection by Department of Digital Culture and Media and Sport. It was announced today bringing the number of protected wreck sites off the coast of England to 53. Protected wrecks can only be explored by licensed divers and it's illegal to explore or remove items from them without permission. It is possible that the Chelsea Beach Cannon site could be a Dutch West Indian, was it? That's not Indian. In India, Manon? Or is that a typo? The hoop, which stranded in Chelsea Cove, 1749, and British cargo vessel Squirrel, which stranded on Chelsea Beach in 1750, historic England said. The U-boat is a German Imperial Navy UC-70 mine-laying submarine, which was commissioned in 1916. The submarine conducted 10 patrols and sank 40 ships during the war before being bombed on the 28th of August in 1918 with the loss of all its crew. Historic England said it is also investigating a new shipwreck at Tankerton near Whitstable in North Kent and remains of an oak-bottom boat. And they go on and talk about some more wrecks, but... Uh, I think they discovered that was a little bit bigger project than what they anticipated. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering about that because what, what they did was marvelous with pulling this thing out and impregnating it with resin. And, you know, I mean, it's a marvelous. Of course, I've been there, but I've seen, you know, pictures of it online. And it's a, I'd love to go there and see that, but of course, I'm kind of, you know, we are a little bit more enthused about shipwrecks than the general public is. Uh, yeah, I kind of wondered if they, you know, part witness realized just what a huge undertaking it was and would have gone a different route had they known. I'm not, I, think I mean, I, anytime I've, they start to do an archaeological dig, they ought to identify the return on the investment because generally it's not them. They got grants that are paying for it, meaning you're paying for it. And if you've got 40,000 wrecks and you want to make museums for parts and pieces from some of those, that's not logical. There's just too many wrecks to try to protect everything. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. 
Well, well and it's sad to say they're just really, I mean, it's getting better, but you really only see these kind of museums flourish when they're in tourist destinations. You know, you've got to have a, a lot of traffic to, to make them worthwhile. And, you know, there are some which, which you do quite well. But, you know, I'm always astounded when you, you hear about these ones that, that came up and then went away because they just did not generate the traffic that they wanted, but they were not in a, a major tourist spot. You know, you, you look at, like, the the uh, oh, the Shipwreck Museum up there, you have at Whitefish Point. But that one is always has a pretty good crowd and does quite well. But then you're also right up right there by Tuquamanon Falls, and you're not far from Pictured Rocks. So you have quite a few, you know, tourists in the area who are, you know, people, you know, a huge number of turnover people that they come and go. Um, you know, it's just that that's essential to make the to make these things work. And you know, the Mary Rose and the Vasa are, you know, some ex- exceptional wrecks. I mean, these things were found uh, in the mud, very well preserved, had great history behind them, great stories behind them, also great losses of life behind, you know, in, in, in the stories. So, yeah, they, they do get a lot of attention, but these are kind of like, you know, your top-of-the-line shipwrecks here, you know, and these are like, you know, like almost like pirate galleons because they've got, they're just, there's so much mystique and story behind them there. You know, I guarantee you those 40,000 shipwrecks, even though we as divers would probably enjoy diving every single one of them, you know, to, to not the non-diver, to the public, uh, individually, they're not going to turn them on that much. They yeah. do a little more than that. And, and I agree with you. It depends on the location and what the wreck is. You know, if you're in a, a location like somewhere in the Bahamas and they had, you know, a fully intact pirate ship, uh, I could see somebody trying to put up the the effort to, to do something with that because they think they could draw enough tourism or, or build a feature around it. But, uh, you know, some of the more obscure ports that we have up here in the Great Lakes, uh, you, you could, you'd never, as Max said, get the return on investment out of what you'd have to put in to get it. Well, you don't even have to talk about a sunken ship. What about the Queen Mary? How much does that cost to maintain where it's at? And that is in a tourist area. And if you can't do it with something that's got a history like that, that's available right now, and can't maintain it, how would you really expect to get something from the ocean, the expense to bring it up, preserve it? Yeah. How are you going to pay for it? Well, and you have the, the case of the uh, Olympic in uh, Philadelphia. You know, the museum for years was trying to get rid of that before they finally decided to reinvest and, and preserve it again. Uh, and that was a case yeah, well, of return on investment. You know, they were looking at where they wanted to put the museum money in and said, ah, for the few naval histo- naval and military historians who like to look at it, uh, you know, they thought they could get a better return doing something else. I don't know if you've ever been to Baltimore, but they got the Ironsides. Wonderful, wonderful ship to go through, especially for a diver to get used to a sailing ship, you know, mm-hmm. that's got a cannon on board. But again, how many of those are going to survive at different ports? Yeah, you're talking about the one at Mystic Seaport? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been there, uh, and I remember it, but I was just a little guy. Uh, and, and, and little both his size and age. Well, it's just got to be in a place where you have a large, you know, amount of tourists coming through there. There's tourists that they want to see local attractions. And they're going to spend money to do that, and they're going to support these things. But, you know, if they're just in a little, you know, mom-and-pop kind of town, uh, when it comes into town, the people that live there are going to come out and see it. Yeah, that's cool, 
but they're not going to come back over and over and over again to, to, you know, to, to, to keep it going. It, it has to be in a place which has a lot of uh, transitory traffic, you know, yeah. such as a tourist town or a port town. Yeah. You know. And this I next mean, are go ahead. I mean, uh, was it there? Wasn't there a uh, oh, up in Traverse City? I know they had a no uh, an, an, an a, attraction ship. It was a uh, replica of an old schooner, which they uh, tried to uh, you know actually sail the ship. It wasn't designed to be sailed. It was actually just supposed to be sit, sit in port and look at. It. And that eventually fell enough into disrepair that, from what I hear, it became a a, a dive attraction out there now. <laughs> Actually, I remember taking my kids when they were little to see that. They built it the same way as the original was built, the same tools and stuff. And you're right. It could not be maintained. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, and, and Traverse City is, is a heck of a tourism area, you know. So I don't know. But uh, you, you've, you've really got to put a lot into these things to keep them going. And, you know, the ones that do go, you know, love them and go back to them every year. You know, you have... The, uh, you know, the, the shipwreck museum up there at Whitefish Point, you know, that's kind of a pilgrimage for every diver. We see all our friends go up there on Facebook and wish we were there too. There is a newer one. Well, it started a couple of years ago, but I've been so disappointed at the lack of promotion on the shipwreck museum up there in Mackinac City. And many seasoned divers don't even know it's there. And it's actually a really, really cool uh, museum based upon all the wrecks up there at the Straits. It is in the Lighthouse Museum, which is just to the east of town, uh, it's they have several rooms devoted to shipwrecks. They have stuff on a, a great deal of stuff on the Cedarville, Eber Ward, the uh, original figurehead for the Sandusky is in there. Is it the Sandusky or the main one? The one which has which had the, the the figurehead stolen then. And it was found, well, the, the original figurehead is, is in this museum. Um, really cool little place to get into. You want to get there kind of early because the hours are kind of quirky. But any diver will spend a half a day in this little museum just to, you know, well, it, 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 it's it's not all shipwrecks, but uh, like I said, they have two rooms devoted to shipwrecks. Also a pretty cool video they, they loop um, devoted to the Cedarville. And, you know, what? That little museum seems to be doing decent, but you go up there and ask around about it, and even the locals don't know where it is. You know, it, it's pretty hard to find unless you know where you're, unless you, you know someone's told you. And I'm telling you, it is in the Lighthouse Museum, just to the east of town. It's actually in a state park there, but something to worth taking a look at. Another one's in Marquette. There's a uh, there's a uh, ship. It's not just about shipwrecks, but it's about shipping and shipwrecks and lighthouses. It's the, the Marquette Maritime Museum. And if you're in the area, I hardly recommend that. I was kind of bummed I couldn't put more time into that place. And then this next article we have is a man submersible is being built to explore the Titanic shipwreck, a titanium and carbon fiber wound pressure vessel. For a new deep-sea man submersible has been constructed in preparation for the first human exploration of the Titanic shipwreck since 2005. Once completed, Cyclops 2 will be the latest addition to the Ocean Gate Incorporated's fleet of vessels, capable of reaching more than 50% of the ocean to increase human exploration in the undersea world. Construction of Cyclops clues a significant step in advancing human exploration of the ocean, 
When completed, it will be the only privately owned submersible in the world that can take five people to a depth of 4,000 meters, said Stockton Rush, CEO of OceanGate. The vessel is comprised of two titanium hemispheres, two matching titanium rings, a 56-inch diameter, 100-inch long carbon fiber-wound cylinder, the largest such device ever built for use at a manned submersible. It is the largest milestone event. The two titanium rings are permanently bonded to the ends of the carbon fiber-wound cylinder to form the core of the pressure vessel. The bonding of the titanium rings to the carbon fiber cylinder is a major milestone in construction of Cyclops II. The accuracy of the alignment and integrity of the bonds were critical to maintaining exacting engineering tolerances, said Tony Nelson, OceanGate's Director of Engineering. The precision we achieve guarantees we have a solid foundation to work with as we continue assembly of the sub. Following delivery of the three main components at OceanGate's engineering operation and facility in Everett, Washington, the team will install electronics, navigation, life support system. Most of the systems to be used on the Cyclops 2 are currently in use in the Cyclops 1 OceanGate submersible that can dive to a depth of 500 meters. The first in-water validation tests for Cyclops 2 are planned in fall of 2017, with deep water dives being conducted in early 2018 in preparation for the Titanic survey expedition to begin in June 2018. Cool stuff. Now, keep in mind, though, that he did say that the first manned missions to the Titanic since 2005. Uh, there has, in the past, been a gentleman taking people down there uh, for quite a while to see it. Uh, I gather it was, just, it was discontinued. Maybe it was discontinued in 2005. So it's not the first one going down there. It's just the first one in a while going down there. Yeah, uh, wasn't it a, a Russian organization, Mac? Do you remember that was running? Yeah, they, they've been doing that for a long time, but I do not know what the current status of the uh, organization, the Russian organization is. Yeah, and then some of it might be the difference between public and government. So some of this may have been government-built equipment being used, where this is probably the first you know, commercial entity-funded expedition. I'm just wondering how proven is this titanium to carbon fiber carbon fiber mating? Uh, you know, hopefully there's some adequate I, testing I that goes link, into that. I, okay. I sent you a link to OceanGate who built those. Uh-huh. It's, I mean, it's going to be too complex for, for discussion tonight, but there's some data there if you want to take a look at it. Okay. Well, it sounds like they're going to test it pretty good, and if I know just how, just how sound the idea is, um, Perhaps the uh, initial trip's done. There will be at a discount, Darren. You want to you want to go for it? <laughs> I, I'm adventurous, but uh, I, I like a little bit more seasoned technology. Uh, you know, may, okay. maybe maybe send it down a couple times. You know, and you know, if the uh, chicken or the canary that's in there survives, then maybe I'll I'll go on the third trip. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I if want to it, apologize if, to our chat room. Normally, I'm posting links in there pretty thoroughly, but I'm having a really hard time holding a uh, holding a uh, link in to uh, the TalkSuit chat room. I keep on getting booted out of it. So, sorry. Usually, I, I give you links and just can't do it today. Now, that uh, vessel, once they get that worked out, uh, it looks like it would probably be able to reach where the U.S. Indian, well, no, maybe not. How far did they say that one was going to go down? You said 4,000 meters. 4,000 meters. No, it's so not, it's it's not going to make it down to the Indianapolis, which nope, has just no, been found in 18,000 feet, 
deep in the Pacific wow. Ocean. Researchers found the wreck of the U.S. warship, which was sunk by a Japanese torpedo in the final days of World War II, more than 18,000 feet or 5.5 kilometers below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. The Navy said on Saturday the cruiser was returning from its mission to deliver components for the atomic bomb that would soon be dropped in the Japanese city of Hiroshima when it was fired upon in the North Pacific Ocean by a Japanese submarine on July 30, 1945. It sank in 12 minutes, according to Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington. No distress signal was sent. About 800 of the 1,196 crew members survived the sinking, but only 316 were rescued alive five days later, with the rest lost to exposure, dehydration, drowning, and sharks. After Navy historian unearthed new information in 2016 about the warship's last movements that pointed to a new search area, a team of civilian researchers led by Paul Allen, a Microsoft Corporation co-founder, spent months searching a 600-mile or 1,500-square-kilometer 1500, 1500 patch of the ocean. With a vessel rigged with equipment that can reach some of the deepest ocean floors, members of Allen's team found the wreckage somewhere in the Philippine Sea on Friday, Allen said in a statement on his website, the statement said the Navy had asked Allen to keep the precise location confidential. Allen said the discovery was a humbling experience and the means of honoring sailors he saw as playing a vital role in ending World War II. While our search for the rest of the wreckage will continue, I hope everyone connected to this historic ship will feel some measure of closure at the discovery so long in coming. Identification was easier than some deep-sea ex. Expeditions. Some of the exposed wreck was clearly marked with, an, with Indianapolis signage, according to photographs shared by Allen Navy. It's exceedingly rare you find the name of the ship on a piece of the wreckage. Paul Taylor, a spokesman for the Navy Historical and Heritage Command, said in a telephone interview, If it's not Indianapolis, then I don't know what it is. The Navy said it has plans to honor the 22 survivors from the Indianapolis still alive, along with families of the ship's crew. Yeah, this is a story that you know, read up on it. I mean, it's really one of the more har- harrowing shipwreck stories there are out there. Um, what, what these guys went through, you know, that when they talk about, you know, the ship going down, I guess 300 men going down with the ship initially, the, the numbers I've heard talk about 900, 900 men in the water and 300 men rescued four days later. And, you know, due to the exposure and men that were burned, in the uh, ship sinking, and you know, I guess there was a lot of oil and petroleum product on the on the water with them, and you know the sharks came along and uh, took, took a toll on the survivors. You know this is really one of the terrible shipwreck stories out there. Uh, you know this was a ship though which did deliver. You know, it was involved with uh, you know, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, I believe. What was it? Wasn't Hiroshima? They were they actually carrying the bomb or just pieces of the bomb for that? You guys know? I believe it was parts of the bomb, but I'm not real sure about that. It, it or was either the Batman or the little boy. Yeah, and, and they said that was the reason why they didn't report their location when they were sinking, is they didn't want to tip off uh, the Japanese that, you know, there was some other plan going on. Wow. Knowing it was so deep, Again, I'm I'm curious why the interest to find it at 18,000 feet. Well, considering who found it, Paul Allen, because he could. And and maybe there's a little bit, because doesn't it Jeff Bezos, who was, uh, who was going after the rockets? 
you know, you wonder if there's maybe a little bit of a uh, challenge. You know, you're not the only guy with, with deep pockets who can go and find stuff. Now, Alan... Uh, well, I'd like to think at least with the military vessels are doing it to locate the war graves to at least know where they are. Um, as far as the rockets, you know, there, there might be some ego involved with that, but uh, I don't know well, the... Uh, Alan is was a known to be a scuba diver. Uh, mm-hmm. His yacht, he used to have a uh, full time dive master on board, so that if he wanted to pop down and go anywhere, he had somebody to take him. Yeah, well, there does seem to be you know a pretty strong interest in finding these war graves. There's a story that I'd like to add to our scuba in the news, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, as pertains to the war grave. There's a uh, Link been going around on Facebook. I think one of the shipwrecks that I featured in the Shipwreck of the Week a while back, where there's a couple of French minesweepers that were lost out on Lake Superior, mm-hmm. and it's actually an effort going out to find these. And this story is actually from our local WKZO.com. Uh, Ninety-nine years later, search for sunken ships begins. Is the header. It shows a picture, I believe, of the, of the uh, Carl Bradley at the beginning of it here. This is uh, WKZO.com, news articles, 2017. Duluth, Minnesota, crews organized by the Great Lakes Ship Museum have, have been on Lake Superior trying to find out why two minesweepers sank in Lake Superior in 1918. The minesweepers, named the Sarasols and Inkerman, were paid for by the French and set sail for Europe on November 23, 1918. From 23, 1918, the ships vanished as gale winds, snow, and spray on Lake Superior struck the ships. Seventy-eight men lost their lives that day. A third ship, called the Sabathapol, survived. For more than a month, the crew organized by the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum have been using modern technology to locate the nearly century-old wrecks. Craig Rich, director of the Michigan Shipwreck Research Association, says it's a long, tedious project, especially in Lake Superior. When Michigan Shipwreck Research Association goes out to discover shipwrecks, we tow a side-scan sonar from a river boat, and typically you tow that quite deep, usually 70 feet off the bottom or so to get it on the topography. Things are much, much different up in Lake Superior than in Lake Michigan. If the ships are found, there will more than likely be several issues such as federal, state, or provincial restrictions. The ships still belong to the French Navy and will most likely be considered a French foregrave site. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum is located in Paradise, Michigan, you know, up in so 70 miles northwest of Whitefish Point, where the Evan Fitzgerald was lost with her entire crew of 29 men on Lake Superior, November 10th, 1975. So, a little bit of scuba in the news quite locally here. Now, do they have any good leads on where they think it is? Um, well, they're not saying that in the article here, but I'm certain they wouldn't be out there searching Lake Superior if they didn't have an idea, you know, uh, you know, I, I imagine it has to have been a, a path the ships were supposed to take, which may have could have been discovered by searching the records for the ship that survived. The I, I do know that all, that all three of these ships were supposedly traveling together, but the uh, you know, storm came in, they were separated, and two of the three didn't make it. So, you know, find out how the Sebastopol made it, and... Now, somewhere along that route is where you'll find these other two. There's been speculation that they may have hit Superior uh, Shoal, which uh, is kind of around the Canadian side. Uh, it's a 
Uh, it, it wasn't actually even marked at this time. Uh, if I understand, it didn't actually even get on the uh, Canadian maps until the 1920s. And I've heard a story about how the uh, Canadian Coast Guard was out there, you know, trying to pinpoint where this thing was to put it on the maps. And just, you know, for the heck of it, they put a grapple down there, which pulled up rigging, you know. So, And then the rigging was both iron and uh, rope rigging down there. So who knows what uh-huh. all was down there at the time. And this was back in the, in the 1920s. Um, it was later on, of course, added to the maps. Uh, you know, Superior Shoal, um, undoubtedly ships did hit, the, hit that and went down, whether or not there was these two for now, you know, who knows. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll find something out after they well, get done with their searching. Yeah, well, if they, if they find it, they'll definitely let us know. If they don't find it, eh, we'll, we'll keep looking, or, you know, hope we will, hopefully we will know. Because, yeah, the, the, these, these two ships would be, you know, very important to find. You know, that they were military vessels. Um, you know, they were, built, they were built in Can- Canada or in their way to the Sioux to join the war effort, and only one of the three made it. Yeah, most of that is not new information either. You'll find those referenced and more information on them in Frederick uh, Stonehouse book, Went Missing. Yeah, I just like that someone's actually looking for them now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you know, you know, again, these are military vessels, war graves, you know, I don't know, of the vessels which are missing out there, you know, personally, I think the ones which are, are military should get the highest uh, nod to go and find it if we can. We just don't have an awful lot of military vessels here in the Great Lakes. You know, there are a few, but uh, the vast majority are freighters and passenger vessels. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. Because, uh, I, I, yeah, at first when you hear uh, French Minesweepers, you're thinking, what the heck are they doing there? But they were just picking them up from being made, so they're brand new. Brand new ships, yeah. Now, Tom Farnquist, you know, executive director of Great Lakes Shipwrecks Historical Society, he's the one trying to solve the mystery, isn't he? His name's not mentioned here. Um, Farnquist is actually no longer with the uh, museum. He is retired. I'm not quite sure what he's doing these days, but I know he's no longer with the museum up there. Yeah, I just had a, yeah, an article. I was looking at it, and it was uh, information provided by him. Okay. Doesn't have a year on it. No, he, but he's still going to be a very knowledgeable source. Whether or not he's still, you know, um, in charge of the museum or in charge of the society is another story. But he's still going to be, be a, a great resource, no doubt. Okay. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Um, Mac, do you have a uh, dive safety? item you'd like to talk about? Well, not so much dive safety. Uh, hang on a second. i got to move something. I was going to talk about seven items that can destroy your dive gear. Uh-huh. And, you know, if you've been diving long enough, every one of these you already know about, but you might not. Number one is going to be the sun. Don't leave your equipment in the direct sunlight because it's going to dry your gear out, and the UV, uh, UV rays will break down the rubber and the fabric. So when you're drying your equipment, Dry it in the shade, or better yet, make yourself an indoor drying room. That'll extend the lifetime of your gear. Second one is sand. And like I said, the beach would be great if it wasn't for all the sand that's out there. Those tiny little sand particles can get and will get lodged in your tank valves, regulators, your low-pressure inflator, your dump valves on your BC. So avoid placing your gear on sandy surfaces if possible. 
make sure you rinse it in fresh water after you dive, and take a toothbrush with you so you can get to those uh, hard-to-reach crevices in your gear. And as you know, most important is wash your gear in fresh water. And bring it up if you're around where it's got salt water. Salt water is another reason to do a freshwater rinse after every dive because all the metals and alloys have the potential for corrosion, especially when exposed to the seawater. So preventing corrosion is going to be a lot cheaper than repairing or replacing whatever went bad. The other item is watch out for chemicals because a lot of guys will play around with the new gear or old gear, getting used to getting ready to go diving by caving into the swimming pool where you got a lot of chlorine. That'll accelerate the breakdown of the materials. It can, at the least, fade your colors. If you're using petroleum jelly like some people do, you got to be careful because it can destroy your rubber O-rings. So whenever you're, you know, seek advice from an expert when you're going to expose your your equipment to chemical-based products. Some of those are going to shorten the life or even completely, you know, destroy your dive gear. And proper storage, same thing there. Never pack your gear until it's thoroughly dry. Core your hoses, your regulated hoses, so they don't kink. And store your items in damp proof boxes. And if you take the gear, time to store your gear, it's going to last a lot longer. Um, being unaware, this is when you're out diving. Be mindful of where you leave your gear. Diving involves lots of energy, excitement. Don't wear yourself out. Get so distracted you become unaware where your gear is resting, especially between the dives. Middle of a parking lot, a road, busy marina. You leave your gear down. You might forget where it's at. That's in traffic. Might reduce your new gear to a pile of broken plastic. So it be tidy. And again, not that everybody's going to be out there to take your gear, but you got to watch out where you put it so the gear doesn't walk away by itself. And then they talk about bad diving. A diver with poor buoyancy, bad trim, is at risk of dragging the gear over the rocks, coral reefs, through the sand, quagga mussels, which leads to physical damage of the equipment as well as the environment. So keep your gauges, octopus, all your accessories secure, close to your body, and you'll go a long way towards preserving your equipment. Ah, very and good points. Done. Yeah, all all good points. Yeah, no, nothing nothing quite gets rid of gear as quickly as running over it with a truck. Kevin, do you have a wreck of the week? Yes, I do. Um, we discussed it a little bit earlier today, but uh, I'm going to go into more detail about the AP Dutton. Uh, this is a shipwreck which which can be dove. You know, uh, this is one which we, we did dive last week. It is in 170 feet of water, so it's definitely a very challenging dive. This is uh, not one for the uh, new divers by any means. Uh, this one was found by uh, Clive Custer back in uh, 2008. Uh, Clive Custer and Ralph Wilbanks were uh, side scanning uh, Lake Michigan looking for 2501 which is, uh, well, DC-4 Airlines, which went down in uh, 1950. time, it was the greatest loss of life in an uh, airline accident. But, uh, part of that search, they've come across a number of other wrecks, and this one here we're talking about is A.P. Dutton, found, found part of that search. A.P. Dutton was built in Racine, Wisconsin in 1856, named after grain distributor A.P. Dutton. In 1868, a partnership of Joseph McLean of Chicago and Patrick McCurney of Benton Harbor purchased the schooner, principally to ship goods between the two cities. They would not use it for very long. Uh, on the evening of December 8, 1868, Joseph McLean, serving as captain, sailed the Dutton out of Chicago with a crew of six. The schooner was carrying a load of new patent schoolhouse furniture, a new ergonomic design including desks and chairs, manufactured in Chicago. 
They were intended for the new Boynton one-room schoolhouse in Benton Harbor, Michigan. The Herald Palladium newspaper described the new school as a magnificent building, which everyone can take pride. It has about 25 feet by 29 feet, built for $900 by Frank Chapman. The wind blew perfectly for a quick lake crossing that night with the light breeze from the southwest midway across the lake. However, the wind turned into a northwest gale and howled for several days. No one ever saw the AP Dot North crew again. Uh, there's a picture here drawn by uh, Robert Dornbus on Michigan Shipwreck Research Association page featuring the AP Dutton. I will say that uh, the most prominent portion is the uh, starboard side of the bow, which does look quite a bit like what we dove up there. I can see that. We did not see anything else. This uh, rendering shows quite a bit of wood sticking just above the sand, and uh, we looked around. We looked quite a bit and did not see anything else sticking out like that. So... It's, uh, you know, today it does not look like what you're seeing here on this picture, but it may have looked like that in 2008 when they first dove it. The Herald Palladium reported the loss of the vessel affected the school. On Saturday night, the, the citizens held a meeting for the purpose of formally dedicating the, the house to its proper use. After singing by the children, Professor Simmons appealed to the people a practical address on the subject of schoolwork and the duties of parents and children. After singing America... The meeting dispersed. The district was unfortunate to lose its furniture to the ill-fated Spooner Dutton, so that seating arrangements were rather primitive. So apparently the uh, school didn't have uh, any furniture after that point because it was on its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably there may be furniture in the hold of the ship. I don't know. Uh, when we were down there, you know, all we saw was just that rail, which uh, is visible on, you can see it on my Facebook, you can see it on the Mud Club Facebook. There's quite a few pictures of it taken by Bob Sweeney. Uh, I think I'm going to do some editing on some and repost them, so I think I can actually make a lot of details, come out with some editing on it there. But basically all, all we saw was just that starboard rail, which shows on MSRA's page. Um, I'm probably not going back. Yeah. But it's a pretty cool story. I do want to point out, though, that they were sailing in December, December 1868, so probably not a big surprise to, Gale took him down when you're out there in a sailing ship on Lake Michigan in December. So yeah, it's not a not your your best time of the the year to be doing any Great Lake traversing. It's not a very big one either. It's a sixty footer. You know, uh, you know the uh, museum ship Friends of Goodwill that we see coming out of South Haven from time to time. You know, it looks big by modern day standards, but that's also a sixty footer. Yeah, and really not something that you want to be out in a, a serious storm in. That'd um, be interesting if you could determine if the deaths are still in there. <laughs> I don't see why they wouldn't be, you know, although, I mean, <laughs> this picture I'm seeing from an MSRA's page indicates that at least in 2008, the deck was, in, was, a te- was intact. I believe this is the wreck, which used to be referred to as the flat wreck, and it looks as though uh, they basically have identified it by proselytization because they knew there were two ships in the area that were lost of similar dimensions, the uh, the William Tell and the A.P. Dutton, and they were able to locate and identify the William Tell. So by elimination, there's this Dutton. Like I said, there's really not much here to uh, you know form a good um, identification on. It's, it's going to be hard to do this no matter what, to be absolutely certain what it is. You know, There are GPS numbers here. You want you can get out there and go see for yourself. <laughs> Be prepared for it, though. 
You only do this kind of dive if you're ready for it. Like I say, I, I, marked, I marked 173 feet what I, what I what I had down there. Yeah, so, a, little, uh, a little deeper than uh, what I would be comfortable doing. Yeah, it was down there always. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some dives. I know that uh, since we last talked that, Kevin, you've got quite a few dives in. Um, when did we last talk? Yeah, I think I've been a little bit absent, absent here, haven't I? I, I think you uh, were touring the Great Lakes, uh, getting wet. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, of course, you know, I've been a couple of dives on the J.D. Marshall. Uh, I've been going down to Indiana quite a bit lately, and, um, not only, the, the, uh, the Marshall is a shipwreck that's right off the Indiana Dunes. It's one that used to get dove a great deal. Actually has a very colorful history to it. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm working on a presentation for it. This, there's actually a lot of really cool secrets about the J.D. Marshall shipwreck. This is one which actually sunk twice, believe it or not. Uh, originally 1911, and then it sunk again in 1982. This, this shipwreck was kidnapped. <laughs> the uh, shipwreck was raised. The uh, you know back in the 80s there was a real hunger for furniture made from shipwreck wood. And a uh, group came out of Chicago, and I don't think it necessarily was illegal for them to do it at the time. That uh, you know, there, there weren't a lot of laws and regulations about it, but they came over to pick up the Marshall and bring it back to Chicago to harvest it as furniture. Now they, just the state of Indiana, wasn't very pleased with the whole idea going on and put a stop to it. By the time the state got out there, the marshal was already on a barge and headed away. It was a hasty unloading of the marshal, and today it sits out there in 32 feet of water, where it initially sunk, I guess, in 20 feet of water. You know, what is there is actually about one-third of the boat, but it's actually a pretty cool dive. It's the uh, stern section upside down, clearly still has a propeller shaft there, has the skeg, you know, implements to attach a rudder to. It's a... Uh, has a number of holes in the hull. You can look down inside and see machinery. Um, the hull itself only comes about five feet off the bottom, but I suspect it goes much, much deeper in the sand because some of the holes you look into look to go a lot deeper than the surrounding sand. So there probably are some significant voids in this thing. Uh, it's pretty cool, though, that you can actually, you know, dive a wreck in only 30 feet of water, which is still a relatively intact hull. Um, Visibility is mediocre there. Indiana, Lake Michigan is not known for having good visibility. So, uh, I made two dives on it. First dive, we had about three-foot visibility. Second dive, we had about ten-foot visibility. Uh, I think you guys have seen the, the pictures I posted on it on the Mud Club Facebook with, with Ron and myself down there. Uh, pretty cool dive, lots of big fish, lots of stuff to see down there. Um, but two dives on that, of course, over the, the Dutton with uh, Schultz, Rob, Bob, and Zach. And... Um, I don't know. Uh, all I can think top of my head. I think I think that everything else I, I shared with you guys before that. So. Okay, uh, Mac. How about you? Have you been gotten in the water recently? I'm not getting a lot of water time, but uh, the club did have their picnic last Saturday, and as part of that, we had either a drift dive, kayak, or grubbing, and we had a little bit of everybody doing something. Uh, visibility was ten feet plus in the river low current, and a heck of a good time. And a couple of people who did not bring their gear walking out there on the dock kept looking down at the water, and you could see the tears form in their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) 
That would have uh, been. They have been doing the Thursday uh, Thursday dives. The night, I think they had some confusion on where people were meeting, so I'm not sure everybody got together to collectively dive. Um, and there have been a lot of inland lake diving going on, Cora, Paw Paw. Um, I think it's Spring Lake. That's the one that's got the, uh, uh, not Caverns. They've had some dredging and stuff out there, so you have like canyons. Uh huh. That has become a real popular site, and they have improved the area out there with guidelines and other items that is going to be worth the visit in the near future if you haven't been out there. I think you're talking about Lime Lake over there in Spring Arbor? Thank you. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah, I, I dove out there with the uh, SAS group uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, definitely, I just want to go back when there are fewer divers in the water because it's, it's, it's a pretty cool dive out there. I know the uh, SAS group has been uh, diving quite regularly and had huge turnouts for their dives. Yes, they do. They have excellent numbers. Whether or not you're experienced or not, they're going to tag you up with somebody. Uh, they actually have somebody who's not diving, who's actually identifying who's going in, who you're diving with, and making sure you came back out. Oh, that's nice. And then, of course, everybody, you're always going to eat. Of course. Well, there's the there's the the, the dive, and then you go to the dive after the dive. So. Yeah. Well, we should be getting pretty close to... Uh, our ecology dive, when is that one scheduled? Let's see, I think the ecology dive is scheduled for the 23rd, I believe, which is September, and that's going to be there at the riverfront, there in Niles, where we had it last year, and hopefully we'll exceed the 2,000 pounds of junk metal we got alone. Yeah, maybe we'll have to test that application, see if it can handle 2,000 pounds of, of debris. Yeah, we're trying to get them to put the um, the gang box, or the the big trash dumpster nearer to us so we don't have to carry um, the junk when we're going to dump, you know, at the end of the dive where we're going to dump mm-hmm. it. Let's yeah. Only move it with your wheelbarrow one place and then not have to go halfway across the park mm-hmm. to put junk in the box. Well, I, I considering where the dumpster was, I think I might change where my uh, tarp is positioned if that dumpster is going to be there again. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to get it closer to the park place, the parking area. Mm-hmm. Near the where we did have all the the different piles, uh, and and that was fun. I, that, the the water was beautiful. It was you know not the best viz, but you're not going to have great viz when everybody's out there mucking about anybody anyway. Yeah, we we had a pretty yeah. good turnout too. I, uh, the the current was a little bit stout, but we had yes. a real good turnout for that dive. Yeah, you could if you, you know, got I, out to in you know some of them who were braver who crossed. I I remember I put my shoulder into the current a couple times and said ah. I'll just, there's plenty to find here near the shore. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have my boat up there, and I spent most of my time taking divers back and forth across the river because you have a diver would get across the river, and they they might puff and puff and burn their whole tank up getting across the river. <laughs> it was so stout out there. But then I remember bringing back a few divers, and they were intent there bringing back their treasure they had found over there because, yeah, they, some of those people had found some really – you know, nasty things to bring back because you know this is a clean up the river. I remember Dan was bringing back car batteries and and all like Tom and found that big crankshaft out there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there was some stuff yeah, out there. Somebody so. had what was the, somebody had like some sort of uh, tower they found. Yeah, that was a mm. that was a pretty good haul. A tower was it like an IBM or a Mac? No, no, I'm not talking a computer. It was like a. Okay, you got me. <clears throat> Okay, well, so we got that coming up, and it is some beautiful weather. We are approaching Labor Day, which also means that we will have some muddies heading up to Sheboygan, Michigan here pretty soon. 
Actually, I think you have some coming up next weekend or, or going up there. Bob, uh, for sure, is going up early. They also do the uh, bridge walk and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're going up early because we found out the rates don't really make a difference after, you know, Labor Day. Yeah. And if you go up now, all the stores are still open because we used to go up after they closed or yeah. the majority of them did. This way, the ladies still have a lot of shopping to do and a lot more places you can eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, good time. Well, you guys have anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Well, I'm good for myself, so I'll let everybody have their two cents. I'd like to remind all of our listeners to uh, continue to support your local dive shop. You know, we all like to get those bargains online, but those bargains online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Additionally, uh, use your libraries as much as you possibly can. There, you know, there's good folks running these organizations, and they need our patronage to stay open. If you get a chance to vote, you know, for them in your millages, you know, send them some money. You know, it's a very valuable resource we don't want to lose. Well, my plug, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air one more year. So if you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you're going to love to listen to WRVO Radio. They're on the air seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You can learn how to listen to them by going to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Scrolling down to the bottom, and we have a link that will take you right there. Uh, also, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're on uh, www.facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. Uh, we're getting ready to do some testing to change out our chat room. So go to our website, go to the Contact Us page, we have some links. We'd love you to... Uh, download Discord, which will be our chat software. You can get to it with a web browser, or you can load in a mobile app on your phone or other mobile device. Right now, it's just going to be text. We won't be doing audio through that. For audio, we'll be doing YouTube Live. And you can uh, click a link there on that Contact Us page as well to our YouTube channel, which right now is remarkably blank. We'll start moving stuff over there pretty soon, and uh, you'll be able to uh, listen live, and maybe we'll make some video-only shows as well and i think we are to that time of the show hey darren yeah if i might i've got a scuba joke sure go okay. for it yep all right well it seems there's this dive club which caters pretty much to uh to to married couples of divers and it's a pretty lengthy application process to actually become a member in this club and part of the application process is that the club asks, because they're very much concerned about uh, you know, hanky-panky going on underwater. Underwater is a very serious place to be. So to demonstrate that you can uh, keep your act together underwater, the, uh, club, the club asks that the married couples demonstrate their ability to do that by abstaining from sex for one month before being members of the club. Well, there is a elderly couple, a middle-aged couple, and a newlywed couple. At the end of the month of the the time goes by, and the club president is interviewing the, the, the three couples again. Well, first he's talking to the elderly couple. Well, how did it go for you there? Wife chimes in, oh, no problem. We had no problem going for a month. Would you like us to, like us to go for another month? Oh, not necessary. Welcome to the club. Well, next the club president is interviewing the middle-aged couple. Well, how did the absence go for you? Well, again, the wife chimes in. It wasn't so bad. You know, the second two weeks we had to sleep in, second bed, in separate beds. But we're definitely glad the time is done. Welcome to the club. Now the club president is interviewing the, the newlywed couple. How'd it go for you? Well, the husband's looking really sheepish, but eventually he speaks up. Well, we managed to get through the first week without too much trouble. 
second week was getting pretty dicey. But then I was with my wife, and she stooped over to put on her flippers. And I saw her beautiful bottom there, and I took her right there on the spot. Now, the club president's looking a little bit embarrassed and asked to tell them, well, you, of course, you understand you're not welcome in our club. Husband responds, yeah, I kind of figured this much. We're not welcome in the dive shop either. Security cameras are everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, I guess I better just leave it right there. I'd get myself in a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) You mean more trouble? More trouble. I've always been in trouble. Good one. All right. Thank you, Kevin. So on on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. been completed judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the chumba life is for everybody so go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.